I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Hello. This week we've got an interview. We rarely do interviews these days, but this one is an exception because it's special. Today we've got Angela Lee, professor of practice at Columbia Business School, focusing on venture capital, leadership, and strategy, and the founder of 37 Angels, an angel network and boot camp that teaches people how to angel invest and then brings them deal flow to do just that. It's a top decile fund that's been investing for a decade. Angela has also started a number of companies, I believe all of which she began while she had a full-time job. And finally, maybe most importantly for this pod, Angela is one of the most honest investors I've met. She's great at deciphering what venture money is good for and what it isn't, and who it's good for and who it isn't. So we'll hopefully get a crash course in a lot of that today. She's also a good friend, so this is awesome. Angela, welcome. So let's start with some brief background. Um, Columbia, 37 Angels, some of the startup stuff you've done, and then we'll get into some of the specific investing content. Yeah. So I spend most of my time at Columbia Business School. Um, I teach mostly venture capital courses, but also strategy and leadership courses. And I'm also the faculty director of the Entrepreneurship Center there. And then outside of Columbia, I run an organization called 37 Angels. Um, we're about 120 investors. Every year, we look at about 3,000 startups and invest in 10. Um, we've been doing this for about a decade, so we've invested in 95 companies to date. And I also do a little bit of corporate training on the side um, to kind of corporate biz dev groups, uh, corporate VCs, stuff like that. Very cool. I think that kind of that intro of C3000 and Invest in 10 is kind of a good place to start um, because I do think that at Tacklebox, we obviously get a ton of people coming in with startup ideas, and I always ask them where they're at or what's going on. And their first response nearly always, no matter where they're at, is I'm trying to raise money. And that's something that I think just sort of comes with the territory of starting a startup and looking at anything online. It seems like that's the logical next step when a lot of times it isn't. Um, so I remember back when I was first trying to raise capital a long time ago and I pitched an angel investor and I remember him saying something like, you have no idea how I make money, do you? And him kind of giving me a crash course in how angel investors actually make money so that I could understand what he might be looking for. And I think that's something that a lot of our entrepreneurs and listeners might benefit from. So I'd love to start by kind of inverting and teaching entrepreneurs a little bit how to be angel investors. Um, because then if we can kind of decipher what a good deal looks like, maybe we can make our businesses look a little bit more like one. Um, so I guess... Just starting with kind of the goals of an angel investor and how you think about angel investors, and then we'll dig in a little bit more on how to think about a deal, how to look at a deal, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that angel investors do it for three main reasons. The first is obviously to make money, and that one's the most measurable. Um, the second is to help founders. I think a lot of us, myself included, are former founders and want to help you all learn from some of the maybe scar tissue that we've built <laughs> up. Um, and then finally, I think something that people don't talk about is they just want to be one of the cool kids. That's what <laughs> all of us want. And um, being an angel investor, you get to be a shark, you're, you're in the room where it happens. And I think that is a really big part of why people become angels. You talked about the structure of the number of deals that you see. Um, do angels tend to see that many deals? Or I imagine there's a wide spectrum, but 
yeah, how, how do they source deals? How many deals do they see? And sort of what are they looking for? The main question you have to ask yourself is, are you a solo angel or are you part of a network? If you're a part of a network and it is a reputable one, they are going to be seeing one, two, three thousand deals a year. That's pretty normal because they have a team to help to go through those deals. If you're a solo angel and doing this on your own, which is what I did when I first started out, you're going to be seeing maybe 50 to maybe several hundred deals a year just purely based on time. You can only look at so many companies. And I guess the big question to start with is like, what are they looking for? If you're looking for, and just to, to clarify for these angel investors, is this often their main job or is this something they do on the side? For 90% of angel investors, they have a day job. So this is something they're doing on the side. There are very few people who are kind of full-time angels. And so that makes the timing even more condensed where you have all these deals and you have to invest in a handful of them. How, what, what are they looking for? Like right off the bat? So I'll share kind of what the framework that we look at, which is we look at the four P's. Uh, we look at people, problem, progress, and price. Uh, people are the team behind it. What is their domain expertise? Problem is how large is a problem that they're solving and what does the competitive landscape look like? Progress is how much traction do they have? And a question I will answer is how much traction do you need to have to pitch an angel? Um, and then finally, price. The deal terms need to make sense for everybody involved. Awesome. And that was definitely going to be my next question of like, what does progress look like for, so when, when should people start pitching angels? So there's a difference between when do you start pitching angels and maybe when you start reaching out to um, investors. And so I think that in terms of pitching angels, um, terms that you might have heard of are kind of pre-seed and seed. Um, And so seed rounds for B2C companies, if you're selling directly to a consumer, I would argue 90% of those, by the time you pitch an angel, you are going to be post-revenue with a prototype. Now, B2B is tougher, right? If you think about a big corporation, they're much less likely to sign a contract with a really small startup. And so it's much more normal if you're a B2B company that when you're pitching an angel investor that you are pre-revenue. For pre-seed, I would argue it's very normal to have, um, I would argue, a very lean prototype, but you can definitely be pre-revenue. Cool. And just to kind of give people a little bit of like a footing here, maybe it'll help to think about specifics. So maybe think about one of the earlier companies that you've invested in that was, um, we'll start B2C and, and do a B2B as well. It'll be helpful. So an early B2C company that you invested in, what type of progress did they have and what kind of stood out? Yeah. So for those of you who are thinking about the chicken or the egg issue, right, <laughs> which is, well, I need funding to get traction, but I need traction to get funding. How do you kind of break through that. So a company that we invested in is called Attention Grace. And they are a company that makes uh, pads for women who are kind of going through menopause and dealing with incontinence. Not a fun topic um, and not something that people are particularly proud to talk about. And they really wanted to make that topic a little bit less taboo and also just elevate the products that were available in that ecosystem. And this is an example of a company that was able to raise a seed round pre-revenue. And they had a prototype um, that they'd built, and they knew what their packaging was going to look like, but they really didn't have any revenue. And the reason why we invested is because the founders were able to demonstrate demand. They said, look, we know that consumers want this. We have a lot of consumer data. We've done consumer interviews. We have a really long waiting list. When they send out some sort of content on their newsletter, they had a really nice open rate. So we knew they had an engaged customer base that they could turn on once they got some funding. 
So your job as a startup founder is to, how do you demonstrate that people will buy it even if they haven't bought it yet? And that can be waiting lists, it can be social media following, it can be engagement or newsletter, it can be letters of intent, stuff like that. And what type of background is is necessary for these founders to have? And I guess I have kind of two separate questions there because we get a ton of solo founders who might be might have been able to describe uh, the problem that that you just referenced, um, but wouldn't have necessarily had the background or the network to like execute on the product itself. And maybe they were able to get demand. Um, so the the question of like, do you need a full team? And then. Well, I guess we'll start with that one. Yeah. So in terms of what we look for in a founding team, we look for domain expertise. We look for um, a thoughtful team structure. And then we look for that magical it factor. In terms of domain expertise, I think sometimes people think this means that you've spent you know, a decade in an industry. It doesn't have to mean that. It can mean that you interviewed 200 of your would-be clients. It can mean that you did 100 customer surveys. You did a couple focus groups. Um, and you did that in six months and really starting to learn about that industry. So you don't have to have lived in an industry for years and years and years to have domain expertise. Also, you can bring that in with your advisory board. On the team structure side, the honest answer is that investors do prefer to see multiple founders on a founding team. However, if you're a solo founder, what you want to do is show to your investors that you are self-aware. So you will say, look, I know that at scale, this company is going to need a chief branding officer, a chief data scientist, and somebody who's an expert in artificial intelligence. I have you know, the second and the third, but I really need to bring in a chief branding officer. And if you show that self-awareness and that you know what it takes to build this company long-term, you will be fine. Got it. And... A question on the financials that you need to have early on. So like if we're talking about pre-revenue stuff, a lot of this is going to be pretty theoretical. So like that company you mentioned, they had a wait list, but they hadn't sold anything. So like how do you think about customer lifetime value or acquisition cost or some of those financial levers and how much stock do you put into like a financial model or how much time should founders spend on that? I think that when you think about metrics and what investors are looking for, I would break it down into kind of financial metrics and engagement metrics. And I find that founders and investors often overly focus on financial metrics. These are things like your customer lifetime value to your customer acquisition cost, you know, revenue growth, um, how much is your monthly recurring revenue. And those are very easy numbers to gauge because revenue is revenue. But what's also really important is your engagement numbers. Your engagement numbers are maybe you have an app and maybe you aren't charging people for it yet, but you know that every single day people are logging into this app five times a day and spending seven minutes per session. That is fantastic engagement that a a savvy investor should value. And so it's really important to track both of those. And oftentimes you can replace financial metrics, which we all like to see, with really good engagement metrics. A question on why angels make investments. Are there patterns that you've seen or anything that a founder might be able to think about when, you know, early on there, there's so much competition, like what's something that they could do to make this deal more attractive or So in terms of making yourself compelling to an investor, I think in terms of the pitch itself, um, one thing we really look for is clarity. So something I say to a lot of founders is go give your two minute pitch 
to 10 people who don't know you and then ask them, what does my startup do? <laughs> and if they can't answer that in a cogent manner, then I would argue you don't have your pitch nailed yet. And it's shocking that I would argue a third of the pitches just go out the window because at the end of it, I'm like, I don't really understand what it is that you're building. So it's um, a minor but incredibly important point, which is concise clarity um, in their pitch in their pitches. Another thing is you know, lead with numbers. I think sometimes founders maybe are embarrassed by a little bit amount of traction, but A, we're going to find out anyway. So lead with the metrics that you know, and there needs to be something compelling about the numbers. Again, maybe it's financial metrics, maybe it's engagement metrics, but something that shows that people care. Um, and then I would say the final thing is that, especially as angel investors, we do invest in the founder. And so connecting with the angel as a human being versus as a bag of cash, I think, is always <laughs> important. Um, and so anything that shows that you've done your research, for example, on the angel, that you know what they invest in, I think, goes so far. And on the um, – I just have another question on the the sort of getting some engagement or traction pre-sales, pre-revenue. Um, we did a little bit of a B2C example. I'm curious if you have a B2B example because that seems to, in my mind, to your point earlier, it'd be really hard to get a pilot or something before there's some sort of social proof uh, or before you have more of a fully fleshed out product. So is, have you maybe think of a deal that's been in the B2B space where people were able to show demand prior to having a product and really early? So we looked at a startup that was, this was quite a few years ago, that was going to do artificial intelligence-based um, booking specifically for fitness companies. And so the idea is I could on my phone text um, and say, hey, I want to take a yoga class tomorrow morning at three o'clock in you know Times Square. And they would text back and say, you can take yoga class A, B, or C. So-and-so are teaching it. Do you want to book? I'd say, sure. Here's my credit card information. And it would feel like I was texting with a human, um, but it was all based through artificial intelligence. I would argue fairly ubiquitous technology these days, but pretty interesting. I think like six years ago, wow. we were looking at this company. Now, to build this, you have to build you know, an algorithm, you have to have a training data set. It takes a lot of capital to build this. So they were not able to build the product without some sort of seed capital. But what did they do? They went out and talked to several hundred fitness studios, and they wow. got 91 letters of intent wow. from fitness studios saying that once you build this, I will pay X dollars a month. And they weren't binding contracts. They weren't all going to convert over to paid customers. But did I believe that they were going to convert a good chunk of them? Absolutely. And so that's a really good example of kind of demonstrating interest, even though they were pre-revenue, pre-product. Um, another idea is to do what's called the concierge MVP, right? The concierge minimum viable product is the human-based one, which is you make people think it's technology, but it's actually humans behind the scenes. So when Seamless first got started, um, I was talking to Tarnarki, and he was saying that when they first got started, you would go online and you'd say, I'm ordering a pizza. And you think there's you know, an email going to the pizza shop, but it's not. It was the founders literally getting that order, calling the pizza shop and ordering it for you. And you can do that sometimes through B2B as well, which is you build a prototype using human labor that you will later on translate into a technology product. I love that. And it it kind of reminds me of the the earliest days of Find Your Lobster when we would like, before we had an app, we had, it was totally email based. And so we would like email people a match each day. And that would, we'd sort of like pull their profile information from Facebook and create this fake email profile. And if both sides responded to like findyourlobster at gmail.com, which was literally our email, said, I'm interested, then we'd send an email CCing the two, if both sides did. And we claimed to have this like matching algorithm, but really we were just looking at their Facebook profiles and being like, 
oh, you guys both like the Colorado Rockies? Like, <laughs> in, you're matched. Love it. Um, it. It wound up, like, working just as well as anything else. And it's a great thing to do because then you know what features people care about, what is it that people are engaging on, and you don't build a feature that nobody wants to use. Yeah, and it forces you to keep things tight, too. Um, one more thing on the domain expertise. There, there's so much emphasis put on domain expertise these days, and you see it whenever you look at, like, a, a VC's homepage, it's always like we – invest in deep domain experts. And they say it over and over. And two things pop out. One, um, when I worked at Johnson Johnson, their venture capital group, one of my bosses used to say all the time when someone would come in with 10 years of experience, he'd be like, that's one year that they did 10 times. Like he wouldn't actually believe it. Um, But the other thing is, I think there's kind of two types of domain experience because there's like domain experience in terms of like being the customer and understanding that versus domain experience and building the product. And I'm curious of the two, if one is more attractive from an investment perspective or um, do you sort of need both or how do you think about that? It's a great question. I think it depends on the type of product you're building. So there is some data to show that for a B2B product that um, the former type of domain experience is more important, which is that you deeply understand customer empathy, especially because early on as a founder, you're going to be the one doing the enterprise sales and you have to be credible that you've kind of walked in their shoes. Um, in terms of the building the product type, I think that is much more relevant if it's a deeply technical product. Um, and so it really depends on the type of product you're building. Cool. I think that's probably, we got a little bit off course, but I think we did a good job uh, or you did a good job of explaining what angel investors are looking for. I guess the last thing we didn't really talk about are the feedback loops for angel investors. So I, I imagine they're inherently really long because obviously a, a business isn't going to exit for a long time generally. So how do angel investors think about deals six months, a year, 18 months afterwards? How do they decide what was a good investment and what wasn't? And how much kind of interaction will founders have with them and all of that, like once the check is written? So one question is on feedback loops. And the reality is, is that in whether you're an angel or a VC, the feedback loops in this industry are terrible. Um, It takes about a decade to know if you're any good at doing this. (laughs) And the reality is that because a few winners make up all of your success, that it doesn't matter if you get it wrong most of the time. If you get it wrong every once in a while, you're a great investor. And so the feedback loops are terrible. And I don't know many investors who have the discipline of looking at their anti-portfolio. Mm. Uh, Bessemer Capital is one who who definitely does. Uh, we look at our anti-portfolio and we do track the companies that we passed on that we shouldn't have and why. So one thing that we learned over time at looking at our anti-portfolio is that we weren't thinking about the competitive landscape in a nuanced enough way. We were like, oh, too many competitors. We can't invest. Hmm. And now we spend much more time thinking, is this an industry where winners going to take all, um, like an Uber? Or is this an industry where you can have lots and lots of winners, like hot sauce or premium ice cream? Hmm. And so um, that is something that we definitely learned by looking at our anti-portfolio. Your second question was? Kind of around how much interaction uh, entrepreneurs will have with angels moving forward. It totally depends on the type of angel investor you are in terms of how much involvement you have. So I know some angel investors who are on a dozen boards, and they're really, really involved in helping them build. Those are more the full-time angels. I would argue most angel investors are going to sit on an advisory board or two um, and be helpful in that way. But one thing that I recommend every founder does is once you, even if you don't have investors, Um, have just an email list of folks 
folks who are kind of helpful, who are investors, advisors, strategic partners, and send out an email once a quarter and be like, here's where we're at. Here's a great thing that happened. Here's where we need help. Um, I definitely see folks underutilizing their network in terms of asking for help. Very cool. Um, Last question on this. I heard someone give advice that I'm not sure I agree with. I might. I haven't really thought through yet, but um, I was basically saying if you're going to raise money or you plan on raising money from angels in the future, you should try and write like one angel check first. And that could even be for like a really small amount of money. But the idea being that you would at least like see some deals to start to see what's out there to start to build some context. I'm curious your thoughts or how else to build context if not that. I don't know if I agree with the idea of writing a check just because I think that's a potentially very expensive way to learn. (laughs) Um, But I think it's a great idea to look at 100 pitch decks. So the great thing about equity crowdfunding is if you go on Mm -hmm. to WeFunder, Proceeder, Seedinvest, you can just log on. You don't need to pay anything and just look at 100 pitch decks, especially if you can see the ones that have gotten funded. And then you can see, well, what are the things that people look for? Oh, this is a really good way to show a customer acquisition funnel. This is a really good way to show what my future pipeline looks like. This is a really good way to talk about a dual set and marketplace and what both sides need. So that, I think, is a great idea. I don't know that everybody should be writing the checks, though. <laughs> That's much better. Um, one more question on this. I keep thinking of them. So... Another question that um, a bunch of our startups and people who listen to the podcast have asked is what should they write in like a cold email to an angel? Do you attach your deck? Do you like give like a full pitch? What is what are the expectations? Um, Is it bad to cold email angels in the first place? Um, Curious your thoughts on that. Cold emails are great and expected. Warm emails are better, right? So if you can get someone to introduce you, that's certainly better. Um, But if you're going to do a cold email, I would say, you know, I'm so-and-so. I'm starting this company, and here's why I'm the right person to start this company. And then I would include two to three bullet points that will make me excited to open the deck, right? So that might be we've had 30% month over month growth, or we have 60,000 followers on Twitter, or our email open rate is X, whatever. Like there has to be something that you can put into a bullet point that's going to make me interested. Um, because if there's not, then I would argue maybe you want to go back to the drawing board a little bit. And then I would encourage you to attach the deck. We're going to ask for it anyway, so you might as well include it. Cool. Here's why I'm the right person, two to three bullets, and a deck. Awesome. So now I want to talk about what options entrepreneurs have. And I know that you're working on or probably finished and are now maybe teaching this course at Columbia Business School um, about the various types of funding that are available. And I think the ones that I listed out, and I might have missed some, but friends and family, angels, VCs, startup studios, revenue-based financing, and venture debt. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on those, and we can kind of rip through each really quickly or high level, or um, because I do think that, again, 99% of entrepreneurs that come to me say, I'm raising money, and they're like, I'm not ready for venture capitalists yet, so I'm raising from angels, and that's the limited scope of their understanding of what the options are. So yeah, maybe we can go through some of those. So I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, do you want to give away equity of your startup? And I think it's a question people don't pause to ask themselves. It's this this knee-jerk reaction, which is, I'm going to go raise from angels and VCs. Um, And 
unfortunately, it is a bit of a one-way street. It's hard to raise a million dollars from angel investors and then three years later be like, nope, just kidding. I want to do this <laughs> thing on my own. So really ask yourself, do I want to give away equity? And what does that mean? It means that you are going to be forced to grow at a pace that might not feel great to you. And by the way, it takes right now an average from seed to exit, eight years to exit. So we're not <laughs> talking about a couple of years of tough um, work-life balance. We're talking eight years. So do you want to sign up for that? Uh, do you want to give away control of your company, right? By series B, most founders have given away half of the equity in their company. Wow. And 50% of founding CEOs are no longer founding CEOs by series C. Sometimes it's their own um, volition stepping down, but a lot of the times it's the board voting them out. So you just have to sign up for that and know what that means. I just think people don't Think about that. Um, Mark Peter Davis has a blog, and he wrote this article called Should I Bootstrap or Take VC Capital? And it's a great article to read around really thinking about what types of companies should be funded by VC versus should not. So that's kind of question number one. Do you want to give away equity? If you want to give away equity, then typically you go friends and family first, then angels, then VCs, basically by how much traction you have and how much funding you need. Um, in terms of alternatives, you can do things like revenue-based financing. Revenue-based financing is instead of giving somebody 20% of your company, you give them 5 to 10% of your monthly revenue for the next three years. That is one way hmm. to raise capital. Um, there is something called factoring, which is a short-term loan where you are borrowing against an account's payable. So let's say you are making energy bars and you have a purchase order from Target for half a million dollars worth of energy bars. You're like, I need $150,000 to go make these energy bars. I don't have that capital. You can borrow that money for three months. That's factoring. Very mm. high interest rates, but very effective for certain use cases. And so there are lots and lots of different ways to fundraise. And I, I think one thing that people forget is that you can fund your company through company revenue. Like I think people forget <laughs> that customer revenue is one way to fund a company, and that's bootstrapping, right? That is growing maybe a little bit more slowly, but you retain control, you get to work the hours you want to work, and you get to own 100% of your company. Great. So now I want to think about a specific example of a company that you and I are going to start right now, and we're going to think about what we would need to validate that company to be ready for um, potentially like friends and family investment or for angel investment and think about how we'd approach it. I think thinking about testing it as well will make a lot of sense because I think that the, the approaches you were talking about earlier about how to validate whether there's actually demand is really good for investors, but it's also really good for the entrepreneur to see like, is this actually worth my time to do? So let's say that you and I decided to start a taco truck and the point of this taco truck was that we made the best mahi-mahi tacos on the planet. Um, and this is popping into my head because I just had these uh, mahi-mahi tacos about a week ago, and they were the best I've ever had. You have to share, Brian. <laughs> um, so we both have full-time jobs right now. We're trying to think about how to validate this thing, like when it will be worth our time to quit, um, what type of people might be good for raising money from, how we might approach them. So maybe starting at the beginning of like the premise is that there aren't any mahi-mahi taco trucks in New York City. It's really hard to get them and we make incredible ones. And I know that this sounds kind of silly, but one of the first ever guests that we had on Idea to Startup back when we were only doing guests was the founder of Luke's Lobster. And I remember 
Great lobster rolls. Right? Like unbelievable, truly different lobster rolls. And we hopped on and talked about why his lobster rolls were different. And it turns out that he had grown up in Maine and his dad was a lobsterman. And there were like three things that everyone does wrong with lobster rolls. He did them right and has built an enormous company on the back of it. So let's assume we have that sort of insight into Mahi Mahi Takas. Um, How would you approach that if I was like, okay, you've got a job. We want to get to the point where you're ready to quit. What would you need to validate? How would you need to think about it? So the first thing I would do is I would sit down and I would brainstorm goals. And most people, when they come up with goals, come up with outcome-based goals, right? I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to be VP. I want to be whatever. Um, It's really important to take those outcome-based goals, which are really important, and to work backwards and say, what are the process goals that will get us to that, right? So if I want to lose 10 pounds, as opposed to having just that, I would say, I want to eat four servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I want to walk 10,000 steps a day, whatever the case may be. And the great thing about process goals is that you have control over them. And the other great thing about process goals is there are many, many paths to the same output goals. There are lots of different ways to lose 10 pounds. (laughs) Um, And what you can do as an entrepreneur is figure out what are the ways that are the most palatable to you. Right. So in this case, what would our output goals be? Right. Sell X number of tacos um, per you know day per month. There might be things even before that. Right. Like come up with the best recipe, come up with the best sourcing, whatever the case may be. But if we focus more on sales and revenue, because that's what a lot of investors care about, how do you get to X number of tacos per per day? Let's say. Well, you can do B two B or you can do B two C. Right. Well, if you're going to go B two B, well, then how are the ways that you can do is a five sales calls a day? What are the different types of people you're going to call into? And then what you're going to find is, you know what? I hate selling into law firms, but I love <laughs> selling into startups. Or gosh, selling into businesses is terrible. I love being on the corner of the street and we're going to have somebody with a little sign that they're going to rotate around. And that's what really works for me. But there are so many ways to sell 100 tacos. But what, is, what are the process goals that make sense for you? And then what we would do is sit down and say, what are the goals that we're going to hit this month, next month, the month after that? And I like to personally hit those goals for probably two or three months before I'd be personally ready to quit my job. But I'm relatively risk averse. Um, And so that is kind of the first thing that I would do is to make sure that you take those outcome goals and you break them into process goals. Because sometimes just the act of writing down the process goals, you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Or, oh, I really do. Or, oh, there's another way that I can think of to get to that goal. So again, most of us think in terms of output goals. I kind of want to start this company now. Um, (laughs) Let's say that we succeed, that we're selling, let's say it's B2B. So we decide that we're going to sell B2B. We spend a couple of months learning that the right places to sell these tacos to are tech companies that have now implemented some sort of like two days a week in the office, three days a week outside of the office, or maybe actually probably a better one is completely remote with the option to come into the office. And there's tacos are the draw. Tacos are the draw. (laughs) Love it. Exactly. So our pitch to them now is we have incredible, and this is like, I remember when I worked way back my first job in finance, um, they would bring in Lombardi's pizza on Fridays. And I remember thinking, like, I had to go to work anyway, but I remember being excited for work. It made a meaningful difference for me. So maybe our tacos would do the same thing. So now our pitch to them is we're going to get people into the office on the days that you have these tacos. And they have signed up to buy, call it, 250 tacos a week. And we have five clients that are buying 250 tacos a week. Awesome. How do we, one, ourselves think about making that jump from, like, 
this is a business that's kind of cool that maybe makes some money that we're really busy making all these tacos in like one of our kitchens to this is a business that can scale to a venture sized business. Mm -hmm. This can be like a brand. This can be in Whole Foods. This can be bought by Pepsi or whatever. Um, How do you think about that jump? And then how do we think about pitching that to investors? So unfortunately, the answer is you open up Excel, which I know isn't the most fun answer, but it is important. So in terms of Excel, what you want to do is work backwards, right? So you have to ask yourself, what does the investor want? The investor wants for you to sell that company or IPO. Let's talk about just selling. Um, And the way that venture math works is we typically want to sell for... um, 10x of what we invested in. So right now, if you think about the average seed stage company being worth between eight and $12 million, let's call it $10 million to make the math easy. That means I have to sell this taco company for $100 million. And so what does it take to get there? So the way that exits work is that you have revenue and then you have a revenue multiple. So either you sell um, $100 million worth of tacos for a 1x multiple or you sell $50 million worth of tacos for a 2x multiple, or so on and so forth. What do I know about food and beverage? Food and beverage typically sells at between a 2 and 5x multiples. Let's just take 4x. So that means you have to get to $25 million worth of tacos sold per year. So the question is, can you get there in a reasonable amount of time? A reasonable amount of time, five to seven years is probably what I would do. And I would just bust out the Excel and be like, how many startups does that mean that I have to sell to? Does that mean I now have to do wholesale and sell frozen tacos into grocery stores? I don't know. Um, But that's the math I want to start doing. So if we look at that, and that's awesome, by the way. But let's say we look at that and decide that we need to sell frozen tacos into Whole Foods Mm -hmm. or sell frozen tacos direct to consumer at a certain level, which is what Luke's Lobster does now, interestingly enough. How do we think about that? Would you then say, okay, let's test frozen tacos before we even start? Because if this is going to be a $100 million business, I need to be able to sell frozen tacos. Or do you think like once we build the brand, we'll figure it out? So what I would say in terms of your pitch deck, um, especially if if you're talking, you're pitching angels, you're pitching seed investors, early on, we do want to see focus. So what I want to see early on is you're really good at doing one thing. And that could be selling B2B into startups, or it could be selling B2C direct to consumer or selling out of a taco stand, whatever it is, but do one thing really well. But then I want to see a slide that shows the math of what it takes to get to scale, but you don't need to in the seed stage to have actually done that. I don't expect you as as a 12-month-old company to have tested selling frozen tacos into Whole Foods. That's a whole different endeavor. Um, But if mathematically you need to do that to get to that $25 million of sales, then I just want to know, well, what percentage of that? Like, How much does Whole Foods spend on Mexican food every year? And and get some sort of sense that you've done some sort of research, but you don't need to have actually done the testing, but just do a little bit of research. Very cool. And last question on this, because I know it's it's somewhat specific to food and beverage, but there are, first of all, a lot of food and beverage startups that get pitched to us, but also it's it's anything with inputs. How much do you think about margins at that stage and pricing? And um, like, would we be testing out? So you mentioned 25 million in sales, but like, does how do you think about profit or margin in that? So profitability is something that everybody talks about, but that the venture industry doesn't actually reward or seem to actually care about. (laughs) Um, Fun fact, uh, the last couple of years, 90% of the companies that have IPO'd have been unprofitable. 
So we all care about profitability. We say we care about profitability, but that's not what the markets are actually di- dictating. So I do think it matters that you have a long-term path to profitability. Um, but if that's just around pricing, right? So if your mahi-mahi costs you $2, then you ha- I would say you have to sell that taco for where you have like a 50% gross margin. Um, but uh, so it's it's important, but not as important as it should be. Cool. And a lot of that money would probably be reinvested into like acquiring new customers or sales process or whatever. And then you would figure out that at some point later you'd become more profitable or there'd be some economy of scale or something. Exactly. Very cool. Um, I am kind of sold on this. I've been trying to think of a name in the back (laughs) of my head and nothing's come up yet, but maybe I'll edit one in if I think about it later. I'm happy to be a taste tester. By the way, speaking of Excel, um, you want to do the math Excel, but I also would do a time Excel. And what I mean by that is literally break out a week and just think about how many hours you're going to have to be doing each thing. Hmm. I think that a lot of startups, especially ones that come out of a passion, like I actually, it's funny, I um, I almost went to culinary school, as you know, Brian, oh. and um, was going to start a food truck. It was called a night market food truck. And why? Because I love to develop recipes and cook. And I'm like, well, so that I want to start a food truck. But if you actually like map out a week in the life of someone who owns a food truck, they're developing recipes like 30 minutes out of that week. And so I do think it's really important to be realistic about how you're going to be spending your time versus glamorizing what the startup might be. That's been one of the most successful things we've done with our founders is time audits and like calendar audits and seeing what you spend your time on each week, breaking it all out and then sort of looking at the week holistically and saying like, one, is this the type of life I want to live? But two, is this the week of somebody who's building this type of company and this type of goal and seeing like if it, if you did 30 of those weeks, would you end up with the thing you want or not? Um, Cool. I think that that is... It, the other idea I was going to pitch, but then I had the taco idea um, was like a babysitter marketplace, which I think would have worked too. And is just more on my mind as I'm having a kid at <laughs> some point relatively soon. Um, but I think this was great. I mean, this would, there was so much information in here that I think is incredibly valuable. I'll add um, links. I, I think there was only one article that you mentioned, but if we talk offline and there are any other helpful links, I'll add them to the show notes. Um, anything final that you would want to mention um, in terms of how people with full-time jobs who are working on ideas, thinking about venture capital, how they should think about it, how they should approach it? Yeah, I have two pieces of advice. I think the first thing is that people spend too much time thinking about the pitch versus the actual company. And so don't spend so much time thinking about the optics of what you're building. Just go build something great versus how it's necessarily going to look. So that's one. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, speaking of time audits and to-do lists, you know, I love a good to-do list and I love checking things off the to-do list. Um, but something that I sometimes see founders do is they're spending time on the wrong things. They're spending time on their logo, on making business cards, on getting the right Twitter handle. And I, when I was um, starting companies, I would have my to-do list. And what I would do is force myself next to the to-do list to write either a dollar sign or a C for customer, which is, mm. am I touching a customer or by doing something that's leading to revenue. And if at least half of my activities on a daily basis weren't doing that, then I wasn't spending a good day working on my startup. Mm. Um, and you can get bogged down in the like administration of being a founder, like asking about you know incorporation. Like I spend so much time, like that doesn't matter. Like go out there, talk to customers, start selling your product, and that's what's going to lead to success. Fantastic. Um, awesome, awesome way to end. Um, 
Angela, thank you so much. This was fantastic. I will add everything to the show notes. Anyone who's interested in becoming an angel investor should go to 37 Angels and take the boot camp. Um, anything else? No, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and you want to test it out with us, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll help you start, validate, and build. And if you like the pod, please rate us and leave a review. That's how people find us. It's super important. Have a great week.